from WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge. This is Louisiana Considered. I'm Diane Mack. Back in December, we brought you a series of stories from the Gulf States newsroom's justice, race, and equity reporter, Bobby Jean Missick. For over a year, she's been following the journeys of Cameroonian asylum seekers in the United States, many of whom were fleeing a brutal conflict that erupted in 2017. But many of these asylum seekers were sent to a part of the Deep South where detention centers were rapidly expanding and a wave of conservative immigration judges had just taken the bench. Today, we are dedicating our entire show to Bobby's reporting, which was done in collaboration with Type Investigations. We'll hear from asylum seekers and look into abuse allegations in detention centers. But first, we will start with Bobby's conversation with WBHM's Cody Short. Bobby, when I think about immigration, I'm usually thinking about the Texas or California borders but you were looking at what's happening in Louisiana and Mississippi away from any border. Right. So Louisiana has the second largest population of detained immigrants in the country. Typically, immigrants who are sent to the region first go to Mississippi for an initial screening, and then they're transferred to Louisiana, where the immigration courts are located. But the judges in these courts have rarely sided with immigrants in recent years. What I found in my investigation is that immigrants from Cameroon, a country in Central Africa, who ended up in Louisiana courts between 2016 and 2021, had higher barriers to asylum than in other parts of the country. I collected hundreds of federal court documents from people living in detention in Louisiana. Dozens were from Cameroonians. And in those documents, some of them said their lives would be in danger if they were returned to Cameroon. So tell us what you've learned about the crisis in Cameroon. What were they fleeing from? So to explain how we got to this moment, we need to do a brief history lesson. Cameroon has two parts, a French-speaking side and a much smaller English-speaking side. I interviewed Fabrice Bidpua. He's a former college student who came to the U.S. to seek asylum. He says people from the French side of Cameroon had better lives. In my country, just being able to speak French gives you an advantage over the other person in so many things. Fabrice says that economic opportunities are more often built on the French side. So the system just seemed rigged against English speakers like him. The language divide came to a head in 2016. English-speaking Cameroonians, particularly lawyers and teachers, began to hold peaceful protests against the heavy influence of French. And the government responded with violence. The military hijacking the demonstrations, tear gassing them, shooting. And according to Fabrice, that former student, when government security forces started shooting people, some people fought back. It was just pointless for them to sit and die without, you know, you got to fight before you die. You don't just the to. government's clamp down on protests silences the more moderate voices in the movement, making room for more radical voices, people who want English-speaking Cameroon to be its own country. These people, identified as separatists, 
take up arms against government forces. And as the fight goes on, you start seeing human rights abuses on both sides. And by 2018, Fabrisk and other students went out to protest. He says they carried plants and green fabrics to show the government that they came in peace. That's when he started getting arrested. He says he was arrested three times, and the third time, police were transporting him and others at night, and the separatists attacked. But he escaped. And I started running. I didn't even know the direction I was running to because it was dark. So I'm just running in the bush, going and going and going. Fabrice was eventually able to leave. His mother paid for his travel out of the country. So this is where your investigation really picks up, Bobby. You looked at what happens when Fabrice and many other Cameroonians end up on America's doorstep looking for protection. Yes, my investigation is not so concerned with how Cameroonians ended up in the U.S., except to say that many of them seem to have good claims to asylum based on the conflict in Cameroon. And the way people like Fabrice say they were targeted by the government's forces. When you look at the numbers in recent years, Cameroonians actually have very high asylum grant rates compared to the national average overall. That suggests that many immigration judges were convinced Cameroonians had strong cases for protection. But what I found in my investigation is Cameroonians like Fabrice had lower chances of success with their asylum claims in Louisiana courts. So you just laid out the violence they escaped in Cameroon. What was going on with the immigration system once they actually got to Mississippi and Louisiana? So for this investigation, I looked at court data from the past several years, and I found that Louisiana immigration judges rarely sided with asylum seekers of any kind. Between 2016 and 2021, we see an asylum grant rate of 64% nationally. In Louisiana, it was around 12 Just 12%? Yeah. So the success rates for Cameroonians who went through those Louisiana courts were just much lower than their country folk who applied in other parts of the U.S. And that's perplexing. Yeah, that is perplexing. And I know we'll hear more about the reasons why in your series. But there was some big news and maybe some hope this past spring The Biden administration granted Cameroonians living in the U.S. temporary protected status. Right. And that's a designation that's given to people whose country is too dangerous to return to. So the Biden administration is also saying, hey, we acknowledge that you are not safe if you return to Cameroon. We're going to let you stay here without any fear of deportation for at least a year and a half. But before the federal government made that decision, Louisiana immigration judges just often failed to acknowledge that danger. Bobby Jean, thank you for your reporting and tackling this very complex issue. Yeah, Cody, thanks for letting me share. We've just heard the Gulf States Newsroom's Bobby Jean Missick talking with WBHM's Cody Short. While claiming asylum certainly isn't easy, according to many of the people interviewed, they would never have fled Cameroon if it wasn't absolutely necessary. Next, 
The Gulf States Newsroom's Bobby Jean Misick documents one man's journey to the United States. When BJ left Cameroon, he insisted that he wasn't planning on going to the U.S. I didn't know where I was going. It's just that I was just looking for a place that I can be safe. But when he arrived in the U.S. in 2019, he says he was locked in detention for nearly a year and a half with a looming final order of deportation. For me to go back home, I know that I'm going to die. BJ is going by a pseudonym for fear of his family's safety in Cameroon. The first thing that went wrong for him was he failed his credible fear interview. This interview is generally the first step before immigrants can even apply for asylum. For BJ and others I spoke with who were in detention, this was a phone call, with an asylum officer on the other end of the line trying to understand why they fled. So can you walk me through that? I asked him to walk me through it. Why exactly he's afraid to go back to Cameroon? Because that was a very, very painful experience, and I, I don't, I don't, I can never forget it. It started with my elder sister. First, he says separatists kidnapped his sister. I got the news. They're seeking independence for English-speaking Cameroon. Most of the country operates in French. I'm really pleading with them to like release my elder sister. BJ says he talked those separatists into letting his sister go, and he took her home. She was so, so happy. But then, Cameroon's military police arrested him on suspicion of being a separatist himself. They beat me every day. BJ says after a few days in jail, an officer helped him escape. He ran home to his wife that same night. His two daughters and infant son were sleeping at the time, and he didn't wake them. He just leaves and goes into hiding in another part of the country. But the police came looking for him, so he left the country. And that's a risky journey to take from Africa to this place. BJ says when he was telling the asylum officer this story, some things were lost in translation. The English he spoke in Cameroon was different from how the asylum officer spoke. So there were some things that he would ask me and I would not even understand. Sometime after the interview, he got a document saying that he had a negative credible fear determination. That means the asylum officer didn't find his story believable or didn't think that he could qualify for asylum. See, with the credible fear interview... Asylum officers are looking to answer a few questions. Is there sort of a possible legal basis for their asylum claim? Does it seem like there's a reason that you fear being returned? That's Mary Yannick, director of Tulane University's Immigrants' Rights Law Clinic. It's supposed to be a fairly low bar. But when BJ gets his paperwork back from that interview, he learns that he somehow didn't meet that low bar. At first, he was reassured by other people in the detention center. They said, they say, oh, don't worry about that. When you go in front of the judge, you can express yourself. He could explain his story to an immigration judge in person. And BJ held on to this idea that he'd get the chance for an immigration judge to review that decision and even overturn it. His case ended up on Judge Brent Landis's desk. This time people in his facility weren't as reassuring. So they were like, oh, my brother, if you're going to meet Judge Landis, just know that you're going to have negative. 
Landis is part of a group of judges appointed to Louisiana immigration courts during the Trump administration. They rarely sided with asylum seekers in recent years. When Landis was on the bench in Louisiana, he granted asylum in under 5% of the cases that he saw. So on the day BJ met with Landis, things didn't go well. First of all, it was via video, not in person. And BJ says Landis just asked him his name, birth date, when he left Cameroon, and when he entered the U.S. And then Landis called it. He agreed with the asylum officer that BJ isn't eligible to apply for protection. And that means he could be deported. So when I was like, uh, uh, please, your honor, I would like, he said, be quiet. You only speak when I ask you to. BJ says he tried to speak anyway, and Landis spun his chair around. And telling the secretary to bring in the next person. After hearing this from BJ, our investigative team looked at credible fear reviews by judges in Louisiana's immigration courts, and we found that they overwhelmingly upheld the original negative credible fear determinations, like the one BJ got. Nationally, judges upheld more than 70% of all credible fear determinations they reviewed between October of 2017 and August of 2021. In Louisiana, it was more than 90%. Landis's rate was nearly 100, which meant almost everyone he reviewed could not apply for asylum. BJ thinks this is not how people fleeing conflict should be treated. No one will ever think of traveling from Africa coming to America just to come have good life. Just know that he's running away from something. And they need to protect the person. They don't need to send him back. The way he sees it, he was running for his life asked for protection, and instead got caught up in this web of an immigration system in the Gulf South, where judges almost never side with immigrants. And even people from countries that are clearly in crisis can be stuck in detention under threat of deportation for years. For the Gulf States Newsroom and Type Investigations, I'm Bobby Jean Mizik. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Diane Mack. Throughout today's show, we've been bringing you a report on Cameroonian asylum seekers who found themselves in the Deep South. In the final story from this investigation, the Gulf States newsroom's Bobby Jean Missick reports on the abuse many migrants claim to have faced while in detention. From the moment he went on the run, fleeing military police in Cameroon, BJ has been searching for safety. When he arrived in the U.S. in 2019, he thought he'd found it when he was allowed to cross the border. Going inside with tears, knowing that I'm going to be safe. We're using a pseudonym because he fears for his family's safety. For nearly a year and a half, BJ was stuck behind bars, inside detention centers in Mississippi and Louisiana, not knowing if or when he'd be sent back. And it's not easy to get out. 
The Immigration and Customs Enforcement Office that manages the region denied almost every parole request it received in 2018 and 2019. They were not releasing people, mm -hmm. so we're just there. Just there, in an area where the majority of detention centers are run by for-profit private prison companies. They treat immigrants like um, worse than prisoners. That's Fabrice Bidpua. He was a student in Cameroon before he fled to the U.S. He's talking about Pine Prairie Ice Processing Center in Louisiana, where he was held for more than a year and a half. He says the dorm where he and other black immigrants slept was crowded and that sometimes they'd be left in a dorm room without AC. Water all over the floor from sweat. We need to keep cleaning over and over like six times a day. Some were detained for so long that they filed federal petitions for relief. Basically, a last resort to get released from punitive indefinite detention. Type Investigations and the Gulf States Newsroom analyzed those petitions and found that most of the Cameroonians who filed had been detained for more than a year. One man was held for more than three years. In Pine Prairie, Bidpua and other Africans, mostly from Cameroon, staged a hunger strike. They were fed up with what they saw as racist treatment, poor conditions, and sweeping parole denials. The facility's parent company, GeoGroup, said they, quote, strongly rejected these allegations. Across the state line at Adams County Correctional Center in Mississippi, BJ had been refusing to sign or fingerprint his deportation documents. He says he thought that would keep him from being sent back to Cameroon. Detention seemed safer than going home. I preferred to stay at Adams, mm -hmm. even for the rest of my life, because I know what will happen if I go back over there to Cameroon. I'm going to die either. Then, in September of 2020, he says officers used force against him. According to a complaint from immigrants' rights groups filed with the Department of Homeland Security, staff at Adams allegedly used pepper spray and excessive force, including chokeholds, to pressure BJ and several other Cameroonians to fingerprint or sign their deportation documents. I was so confused because, you know... I didn't commit any crime. I was just like, I don't want to use my fingerprint because I don't want to go back. That was all. A representative from Core Civic, the detention center's parent company, denied some allegations made in the complaint, but not the use of force. The company alleges that three detainees assaulted staff members and had to be subdued. Both BJ and Bidpua spent roughly a year and a half in detention with no idea of when they would be deported or released. They got out after Biden took office and pushed for the release of low-threat detainees. Bidpua is in Maryland. He's studying database administration. BJ is in Texas. He's working as a carpenter. And this spring, they got another glimmer of hope. Hi. Hey, Bobby. <laughs> Look at <laughs> I'm going crazy already, Bobby. On this morning, April 15th, the Biden administration announced it was granting temporary protected status to Cameroonians in the U.S. Today is the happiest day in my life. 
After years of legal limbo, TPS was a formal recognition that the ongoing armed conflict and humanitarian crisis in Cameroon made it too dangerous for many to return home. An estimated 40,000 Cameroonians are eligible to apply for the relief, which would It's big news. TPS allows them to work and live here without any threat of deportation for at least 18 months. Bidpua says he's grateful to the U.S. government for granting Cameroonians temporary protected status. But it is just temporary. And after it's lifted... Where am I going to? Who do I know? I cannot go back to my country. And that temporary protection does not offer a separate path to citizenship. So the good news is bittersweet for BJ and his family. There's still no legal way for BJ to apply for them to join him in the U.S. But when he told his wife about it... She was so, so happy. And then she started crying. <laughs> I talked to her and the kids, too. My boy, he's always like, Daddy, when are you coming to take me? <laughs> uh, you know, each time he asks me that question, I feel so bad. Which question? Daddy, when are you coming to take me? He's happy to be safe and alive in the U.S., Free from detention with temporary protection, he now has a new focus, being there for his wife and kids. That means his journey isn't over. For the Gulf States Newsroom and Type Investigations, I'm Bobby Jean Mizik. Late December saw the loss of Walter Wolfman Washington, a legendary local guitarist and singer who lit up New Orleans clubs for six decades. He was a member of the band The Roadmasters and often collaborated with artists like Irma Thomas, Joe Crown, and Russell Batiste Jr. Before we go today, we'll take a listen to one of Wolfman's recordings from the last few years. Here he is singing The Boys at the 2020 Virtual Crescent City Blues and Barbecue Festival.
From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Diane Mack. Thanks to our guest, the Gulf States Newsroom's Bobby Jean Misick. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber. And our digital editor is Caitlin Umholtz. Our engineers are Garrett Pittman and Aubrey Procell. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7.30 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcast. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from Louisiana Farm Bureau Federation.